Laura Whitehorn is a lifelong organizer and activist whose work spans anti-war, AIDS, anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and prison abolition movements. Laura was interviewed by Lonnie Hanna about her work, including the recent Interference Archive exhibition, Self-Determination, Inside Out. talking to Laura Whitehorn about her history of activism and pr production of material culture, which we are all about here at the Archive. To start with, I just wanted to have you introduce to the listeners your political action, both historical up till now, just kind of a history of hmm. activism. <laughs> I know that's a, for you specifically, that's a really big question. Well, since I'm 70 years old, and uh, I was born in the big upsurge of national liberation after the Second World War. Um, my history goes back a lot, so I'm not going to go through all of it. But I will say that what motivated me and continues to is the struggles around the world and inside the United States of oppressed people against our own government's repression. And I, when I say that, I'm not saying the United States is a fascist country or something, there is an enormous amount of repression. But the system itself, you know, capitalism and the ways that it exploits and takes advantage of especially black people um, and the ways that slavery laid the basis for capitalism and that continues in racism today. So that goes from the 60s when I was involved in the anti-war movement against the war in Vietnam, um, supported the Cuban Revolution, which had just happened uh, and worked with the Black Panthers, worked, started in the civil rights movement as a supporter of the attempts by black people in the South to get the vote, which stood for, to me, for the, the most fundamental ways that black people were excluded from, uh, from any kind of say in the society we live in. And then I began to work with the Black Panther par Party when the Black Power Movement arose, um, was organized actually by Fred Hampton, who was later assassinated uh, by the government, um, as I'm sure there are many posters within two feet of us about that, um, and the murder of Fred Hampton, a film uh, shows exactly how it happened and how the FBI and the Chicago um, police and the U.S. attorney in Chicago, state's attorney, sorry, Edward Hanrahan, were involved in that. And that period and the viciousness of the government against basic human rights struggles, you know, Breakfast for Children program, self-defense against police killings of innocent, you know, unarmed black people, all of that, how the government came down on that, um, May, it organized me to be more militant in those days. And we saw around the world, we saw all these national liberation wars going on and people winning basic human rights and human dignity by fighting for themselves. And so we joined and supported, I joined and supported those sorts of movements inside the United States, which then led to me later going underground, which at that point was how we thought we could fight against government and ending up in prison. And through all of that, um, I used whatever means for communication I could. You have uh, um, been actively engaged in work towards the release of political prisoners since your release. 
Uh, can you tell me about hmm. this work? Well, actually, I was I was engaged in it way before I got arrested because um, I started work during the Attica Rebellion when after the Attica Rebellion was so brutally put down, I was part of. I went up to Buffalo and I worked on the case of the Attica Brothers, and there were some political prisoners in there, and that was part of the beginning of it. And then there was Geronimo Pratt, Geronimo Gijaga, who was it was in prison from like 1971 in California, and there was um, uh, Sundiata Akoli, who's the co-defendant of Asada Shakur, who was in prison in New Jersey since 1973. There were a number of black political prisoners whose cases um, I well, I didn't work on their cases so much as we tried to create. We created cards and banners and tried to make them present in left demonstrations and organizations. Um, so I did that from early on, and I continue to do it, although now I do it in a way that tries to make more clearly the connections between um, the movement that's going on now, the Black Lives, movement, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the movement against mass incarceration, and the movement for abolition of prisons, and movement to support political prisoners, because those things all go together. You know, political prisoners are not the only ones who are denied medical care by a long shot. The conditions people are held in more and more are the same as the conditions of all prisoners. What's different is that political prisoners represent a specific part of the repression that prisons carry out. So prisons carry out repression by repressing whole communities. I mean, there's a lot of talk now about collateral damage, um, what happens to entire communities when so many black people are locked up, uh, what happens to the families, what happens to... There was just a story in the New York Times a few weeks ago about what happens when women have to, you know, work two jobs because now the husband's in prison or the father of the child is in prison, raise the kids by herself and get on a bus at midnight to go upstate New York to visit with the kids, on, you know, so they can stand in line and be treated like cattle to go in to visit the father on Saturday. So um, that's one form of repression. That means that communities are, the fabric of communities is shredded. I think it's really connected with the housing issue in New York because if you can destroy a community, then you've got, it's ripe for gentrification. I think that's what's happened all over Brooklyn which is why, and the Lower East Side, which is why you see this enormous turnover. I don't even know if, you know, we think, oh, the yeah, gentrification has already happened in New York. It's, it's like a monster happening more and more. And those communities are made vulnerable to that, partly, not only, but partly by mass incarceration because of the sheer numbers of people who are locked up. So there's that on the one hand, and on the other hand, there are these people from the 60s and 70s who've been locked up since then because they committed an act or were convicted of committing a violent act, some are innocent, some are not, um, that was taken in defense of a community. So when the, um, the Black Panther Party was so repressed and the police were killing so many black people in the streets, some people shot back. And then if some people are in prison to this day for killing two cops, in the same time they've been in prison, 44 years, the cops in this country have killed something like 58,000 civilians. So, you know, it's like such unequal justice, but it, has, it makes a point. And the same thing's true of the Puerto Rican movement and 
the Native American movement. The lesson is don't fight back. And um, mainly for the millions of people of color who are locked up, the lesson is nothing you do is right, and if you make a mistake, you're, you're going to be buried. So it's, you know, altogether it has the impact of repressing any kind of struggle for human rights. Um, and I hope, you know, we saw last year we saw Eddie Conway got out in Baltimore after 44 years. Sekou Odinga got out after 33 years. A man named Sekou Kambui in Alabama got out after, I think, 33 or 40 years. And um, so we're hoping we keep, we keep fighting for it. And, you know, I think any movement worth its salt has a backbone and doesn't leave people. You know, if you're at a demonstration and someone trips in the street and a police horse is about to step on them, you don't leave them there. You drag them to safety, you know. So that's what I feel like we have to do with people in prison in general, but especially the people from our movements. Uh, you mentioned that some activism that you participated in while you, you were incarcerated was AIDS education. And um, I know when I worked with you a little on the self-determination, you talked about some of the materials that were produced. And can you just give a little the listeners a little more detail about what what that looked like? Yeah. How? Well, we were. It was you know I'm, I was locked up in 1985, and I did my first five years in Baltimore City Jail and DC Jail, pretty much. Um, and those Baltimore and DC, especially when you're looking at who was in prison. This is the beginning of the war on drugs too, or just at the beginning of it. Um, the people, the jails were almost 100% black, and people had been either using drugs or doing sex work in terms of the women. And the rates of women who were going to the to sick call and coming back saying, they told me I'm dying. They told me I have something called AIDS, I have pneumonia, whatever. And people knew nothing. So there was the first reaction to it on the part of the jail or the detention centers or wherever I was, was for the guards to, to try to isolate those women and you know tell people, don't talk to her, don't touch her, you'll catch it. And so um, I was in D.C. jail at one point with four other political prisoners. So we got together and we learned about HIV. We didn't know anything. We got this issue of Scientific American from when, I guess it was, um, I can't remember what year it was, when they first started talking about the virus itself. And we started to try to teach. But this was also, um, Amelia, where people hadn't had basic science education. So we were teaching basic science. Actually, your blood is made up of cells, you know, that kind of thing. And to do that, we had to, it's kind of boring stuff. And also people were frightened. So we had to make it attractive in some way. So we would make um, cartoons, um, use, if we could get colored pencils, things to, to color things in, um, the, do the AIDS ribbon, because that was very popular. And then when I got to a, to a federal prison, where I got sent to Lexington, Kentucky, which at that point was a women's prison, and it was also the federal women's hospital for women in prison. And there were a ton of women dying there. Um, and we created something called the A-Team for AIDS, and we did a health fair. And it was very hard to get people to want to come because people were afraid that if they showed up at the health fair, people would think that they had AIDS. So we had to expand it beyond with stop smoking and diabetes, you know, we had to cover all these health issues. But then in, 
prison, there's so much scarcity that we realized if we had materials to give out and if we had things to give, like toothbrushes, toothpaste, stuff like that, it would help. So we got people on the outside to get drug stores and stuff to donate this stuff, got it through the chapel. You know, we, we tried to do that. The most powerful thing that happened, though, um, which had very little to do with art and culture, actually. It had to do with human bravery. Was What year was that? It must have been 1990. Um, we decided to show the film Philadelphia, whatever year it, it had been out for a little while. And so we, we set up a showing, and there weren't many movies shown in prison, so we knew a, a lot of people would come. I mean, Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington. And this woman who became my best friend until she died, um, Rosalind Simpson Bay, stood up at the beginning and said, I'm living with AIDS, and you can too. And that was in a time when no one said, I have AIDS. I mean, on the outside, there was a movement that was ACT UP. There was all of that starting mostly in gay communities where there was already some kind of sense of being, you know, counterculture. But this is in a different kind of community in prison where it was people wanted to be part of the mainstream culture. They had been kept out of it, so it was sort of the opposite thing. Her saying that, Ra saying that, was broke the whole issue open. People were still afraid. When we had, we did AIDS um, support groups, and we had to put uh, sheets on the windows of the chapel so that people would come, so no one would see that they were there. We showed videos from outside. I had friends in Chicago who were part of um, Women Make Movies, and they would get videos, and I could get them through the chaplain, and we would show videos and to show women that there were people on the outside like them and also who were fighting for them. Um, I'm trying to remember what else we did that would be relevant to this. Exactly, we did walkathons a lot of that because there was this moment where people would say, well, we want to give to other people. We want to give to people who are fighting AIDS on the outside. So we would do walkathons and raise money, which always astounded these AIDS organizations on the outside, that people who had nothing would write to our families and say, could you donate? And we would you know, raise a few hundred dollars, not a lot. And then we made uh, panels of the quilt. You know, we thought, well, we're allowed to sew. We couldn't get a lot of any kind of tools that had that were sharp. But in most women's prisons, one of the crafts that they want you to learn is sewing by hand. Very, very useful for getting a job once you get out. Not, <laughs> but we took that and we were able in. We did it in Mariana, Florida. We did it in Dublin, California, and they did one in Danbury. Those are three. Uh, federal prisons, and I think some of the state prisons around the country did it too. Um, and it gave women inside a chance to memorialize their family members on the outside who died. And also eventually people would then add their own names or the names of friends that they knew who had AIDS. And so it was a, a way of, of saying we exist, we're, our lives are worth memorializing, and we're part of a movement. And that was the key thing about it always, was the way that because ACT UP was functioning around the country, and because, and this is one of the things the political prisoners were able to bring to this work, we knew people on the outside who were in ACT UP. If we had been outside, we would have been in ACT UP too. And it was part of being an activist. And um, 
being able to, I remember this one time when we were in Lexington, it was in the early days, and women who were dying, I mean, they were literally within six months of dying from AIDS. We were having a, um, a support group meeting, and someone had sent me a video called, I think, We Care. And so we started watching it, and it was basically about different um, AIDS organizations on the outside, and I was thinking, uh-oh, this is not helpful. We need something that says, you know, you still have a right to love, you still have, you know, something like that. And then there was a, it showed a demonstration in Chicago that ACT UP did very early when they were demanding that there be beds for women with AIDS in Cook County Hospital. And the women, I looked around the room, and there were like ten women in there, and three of them were crying. So after the video was over, I said, what, what made you cry about that? And they said, there are people on the outside who are fighting for us. And that kind of connection is what the culture also did, because when we would use the same images, silence equals death, and then we would get images from the outside or people would see it in the newspaper, it made a connection through the walls for people whose lives were really in danger. And that made a huge difference. And it then opened up space for other kinds of organizing. So in every prison I was in, the same women who would come to the AIDS groups, it was usually called AIDS Counseling and Education, would also work on Black History Month and try to bring in groups talking about the history of black people and what that has to do with prisons and that kind of stuff. It was a very fertile area. Then I got out of prison and I remained committed to work to abolish the prison system and replace it with some different form of social healing and dealing with damage and violence, you know, some way to stop violence as opposed to promoting it, which I think the prison system does. And I also continue to work on the cases of political prisoners because there have been political prisoners as long as there have been prisons in the United States. But from my era, there were um, people from the Puerto Rican independence movement, people from the black liberation movement, and are now uh, 20 or so black prisoners in the United States in prisons for political crimes, by, defined by the United States, um, who've been in for 40 years and more and had been ignored for many years. So I became involved in that movement. And right now I'm working in something called Release Aging People in Prison. RapCampaign.com is the website, so I don't have to describe fully what it is. But it's an example of how the prison system is so um, built on this paradigm of punishment and revenge and uh, where it doesn't it has nothing to do with public safety and we're talking about you know growing numbers of people in prison over the age of 50 who pose no risk to public safety have served many years have long since satisfied any sense of what people should do to be punished for having committed a crime and are denied release over and over again. And many of them are political prisoners. And last year, I guess it was, I was involved here at the Interference Archive in a show that I just loved, which was called uh, Self-Determination Inside Out, which was, it was about the prison movement. But there's a lot of attention now in this country to prisoners and prison movement. Um, but our show was trying to reflect the impact that people in prison have had on movements on the outside, starting with Attica and going through the period of the beginning of control units and solitary confinement and 
movements against AIDS inside prison and um, the rights of women, you know, and the movement uh, to support women who are in prison for killing their batterers. Um, and I can't remember what else we did, oh, political prisoners. And it was just, it was really wonderful because um, it was just such a rich history. And we found so many leaflets and posters. And these are things, a lot of them were produced by people inside. Some were by people outside working together with people inside. Like a poster I was involved in that was one of the first posters in the show um, on Attica, which I designed in, I don't know, 78, I think, with Akhil Aljundi, who was one of the Attica brothers, who died while I was still in prison. He died in, I think, 1998. Um, and there were many others like that. And there were newsletters and theolo the uh, the theological, no, ideological articles that were written by people inside. And we were showing the ways that when you look inside the prisons, you don't just see, as the famous quote is, how the society treats its most vulnerable, but you also see how the how the system works, the brutality that's sort of underneath the pretty edges of the gap and, you know, all the other consumerist, all the TVs and all the iPhones and everything else that we enjoy in this country. You see sort of the, the bare bones of it and how ugly and how full of violence those are. So that was what the show was, and it was very exciting for me to work at the archive because, for one thing, when we pulled out what the archive has in its drawers and shelves, I saw things that I remembered from the 70s and 80s from prison struggles that I hadn't seen in years. And so the fact that that was that is maintained here to me is such an important part of, of our culture because having spent years in prison and having worked on all these things and done both illegal violent acts and many legal and nonviolent acts and everything, people say to me a lot of times, do you think that what you did was worth it? Do you think you made change? Do you think you affected anything? And I always joke well, we have socialism, don't we? And we don't have any oppression. Oh, no, sorry, forgot. We didn't win. We haven't won yet. But there is something to be said for the the legacy of struggle and how it continues. And whether it's a small issue or a large issue, the fact that people continually fight for the right to live, you know, as the Vietnamese said, the right to live in peace and independence um, is one of the most important things about breathing in and out every day. So that's why, to me, the Interference Archive and this doing these histories of people is so important. And we're sitting here on a day when there's a wonderful um, show in this archive of Cuban posters. from They're mostly from ASPAL, right? Yeah. Organization Solidarity with the People of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, which was um, an organization that was... Uh, begun in Cuba that included artists from around the world and created some of the most famous posters in solidarity with the other struggles. We were artists in this country, and I'm not really an artist, but I was sort of arty, <laughs> um, were moved by that to create all kinds of art ourselves, whether it was t-shirts, spray painting on walls, um, posters, and books. So I was part of something called the Madame Graphics Collective. 
and in prison I continued that because it was one of the few ways that I had to express myself both as a human being individually and also as a political entity um, in prison. So around, let's see, how did I start doing art in prison? I think a lot of it was at the time of the beginning of the AIDS epidemic when people around me were dying inside prison. Um, all these black women who were infected with HIV and developed AIDS very quickly. And this is in the 80s. So it was even before, it was way before the development of effective HIV treatments. So the, we didn't even talk about HIV in those days. It was right when HIV had been discovered. All we knew about was AIDS. Um, and I started doing art as part of the outreach to other, to the women inside to get them to come to education classes to learn how to take care of themselves. But also when the United States government, like 10 years later in whatever it was, 93, 94, issued a stamp when after doing nothing about AIDS for so many years. They issued a stamp, and I think it was at that point, 29 cents was the first-class postage, and it was a red ribbon for, you know, the AIDS ribbon. But if you turned it up around, it was a noose, and um, it just said to me, this is really what the government's about. So I started taking those and putting them together with colored pen and stuff and doing all kinds of um, weird kind of artwork. Um, so that was how I started doing art in prison. And later I did, you know, I would do things for people on the outside, my friends who were involved in, in various um, protests and stuff like that. Well, actually, something you said brought me to a question that I had. Um, uh, current activism is thinking a lot about solidarity and allyship um, with the Arm, Desi Arm by Design exhibition that's happening right now. We talked a lot about how at the time that most of these posters were produced in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, solidarity with Latin American struggle or anti or decolonial struggles in Africa had to do with solidarity with armed struggle. Right. And that's really not the case now, yeah. and solidarity's just shifted. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what, what that brings mm. up for you. I mean, for me, it just brings up that you have to look around you and see what the demands are of people who you think have legitimate demands. I mean, for, ex for example, around gentrification, um, my, my partner, Susie Day, and I own a small apartment in Washington Heights. And when we bought it, it was very inexpensive. And since then, property values have risen, and new people have moved into our building. And um, people were talking about, oh, we should upgrade the lobby, and we should put in improvements so that our property values go up. So we said to them, we don't want to do that. We want things to work. We don't want, you know, holes in the wall or something. But if we're trying to get our property values to go up, that means that the people down the block who rent, well, their rents will go up eventually. And it means that then the rents of the little stores on the next street will go up, and the whole neighborhood. And so that's an act against people who are poorer than you are. And to me, that's, you know, that's how I like to think about things, is what impact does what I'm doing have on other people? Then there are other times when people are in need so, or, in, or are being targeted um, in Boston. And soon after that takeover, uh, there was a big movement against school busing, which was done, being done to integrate the schools. So there was a right-wing, racist, very Klan-like movement 
um, against the against busing. And one of the things that they did was attack black families who had moved into communities that were supposed to be quote you know white havens. Um, and there was a lot of violence against black people going on. And one thing that we did was to go talk to all the black organizations we could find and ask what was needed, what did they need from white people. And one of the things that was needed that was very under, it was not a publicity thing, it was not, you wouldn't, you know, be known for it, was to sit in people's houses at night so they could get some sleep to defend them so that they didn't have to sit up waiting for someone to throw something through the window. And we organized a group of white people in Boston. We did that for like two years. And it was it was it was work. I mean staying up all night and, you know, finding people, making sure that every house was covered. There were only two homes that we did it and we probably couldn't have done more than that. But that to me was a good example of where instead of us deciding, well, this is what we should do, you know, and the other thing was, which I think is the hardest is going into the white community and organizing against racism. Um, and that's a form of solidarity that, you know, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee asked for when they asked the white people to leave during the pa black power movement and said, we need you, racism is a white problem. It's not a black problem. It's a problem for black people. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we need you to try to take steps against that. So, I, I mean, I don't think there's any one clear issue. And even back then, you know, there was clear solidarity and those posters are an example of that. Um, but that's sort of the easier form, even though it seems like it's very brave and stuff, but it's easier than being actually the person who goes into a meeting where a white, a white community is organized, or, you know, the stuff against the immigrants, um, or the stuff against the refugees. You know, much harder to go into a meeting like that and say, I live in this neighborhood, and I disagree with what you're saying. You know, I think we should welcome people here and then talk about that. So I think solidarity takes a million different forms, you know. I think at this point, it for white people in the society and for other people who have a lot of privilege, it often takes the form of just looking at your privilege and seeing what that gives you the right to do and what it doesn't give you the right to do, and how, not necessarily to share exactly, but how to use your privilege to try to expose the fact that privilege means that there are some people who are unprivileged, not underprivileged, but deprivileged. That's great. So your activism takes place, or um, yeah, takes many forms, publications, writings, speaks, you know, you give talks. Um, is there any one form of expression that you think reaches a broader audience? Or ah. Is there anything you're putting more direction towards? Yeah. Well, I just actually, I wanted to just mention something I just got done doing, which was um, editing a magazine for people behind the walls called Turn It Up, Staying Strong Inside. And it's basically a health and wellness magazine. And we tried to have a lot, most of the articles were written by people who were either currently incarcerated or formerly. And it was a full-color magazine. Um, a man who started Paz Magazine, where I worked when I got out of prison, uh, got funding for it for just one issue. We printed 40,000 copies, and it went to 30,000 people in prison. And the idea behind it came from um, from the man who, fund, who got the funding for it, Sean Strube, 
who does work against HIV criminal laws, which are laws around the country that criminalize behavior if you have HIV that wouldn't be criminal if you don't, like spitting on someone, you know, which can't communicate HIV. Um, but also, in, through that, has been very concerned with the situation of people inside and how they have no health care, and the health care is, is carried out by people who hate them, and um, what it's like to live in those situations, especially if you're gay, if you have HIV, hepatitis C, which is a huge epidemic in this country, but especially behind bars because there's so many people who have at some point in their life used a needle. Um, so I worked on that all summer. It wasn't totally voluntary, but almost voluntary um, in terms of, you know, getting any kind of pay. But... It, and, you know, it was a beautiful summer, and I would be sitting at my computer working on this, I'd be thinking, I should be outside. But it gave me so much joy to do it, because I felt that, and it has been true, that I remember moments when I was in prison when I felt like no one was seeing what was happening to me. And I had it pretty good, because I had family on the outside. Um, Susie Day and I fell in love early on when she came in to interview me and my co-dependents, so she was on the outside. I had lots of friends on the outside, um, but there are times when you can't reach anyone, you know, you can't get to a phone. And, but I know what that feels like when you're being treated so badly, it's so totally unfair, it's such a... a a violation of anything this country pretends to believe in, and you think no one sees you. So the main thing we wanted with this publication was that people felt seen and cared for, and also be given some basic tools, like 12 pages of resources, and places, which was really hard. You say to a group, do you have free publications? And they say, yes. They mean you can download things for free from their websites. Prisoners can't get on the internet. So we had to go through and find out which ones were either willing to print things out and send them to people inside or had pamphlets and stuff. So, you know, stuff like that that would really be useful. And um, it's it's kind of a funny thing. It's a magazine. It's not, you know, it's not a protest. It's not, but it has in it certain things like how to file a medical grievance, which is, you know, the kind of thing which you think you would know how to do, but when you're in that situation in prison, there are all kinds of rules that you have to do, there are ways to follow it. So just putting some little article like that in there, telling people about the hepatitis C drugs that are available now that are not being given to people in prison because of the cost, things like that that actually give people some sense of power and some ability you know, to fight for themselves. That was really exciting. And the other thing is release aging people in prison, which is just sort of taken off because it's such an obvious, obviously sane idea. Their population of people in prison over the age of 50 is rising astronomically because of the long sentences that people have gotten for the last 40 years, and especially the last 20 years. And people pose no risk to public safety for the most part, not everyone, but most people. And yet they're not let out because the society thrives on punishment. So what are ways of ch turning that around? And in doing that, we've gone to communities, community boards, and talked to people whose sort of knee-jerk thing is, well, if someone kills someone, they should be in prison for the rest of their lives. So then you have to challenge that whole thinking. And in doing so, we've challenged the sense that communities have given up our power or our agency to police, 
and institutions, and we have to take it back.